Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing head injury. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, my name's Jamie and I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Hi, I'm Asif Malik, I'm one of the consultants um, at the Queen, in the emergency department at the Queen's Medical Centre. And today we're going to be discussing uh, head injury, uh, um, a bit of a background uh, to the presentation of head injury. So each year 1.4 million people attend emergency departments in England and Wales with some sort of recent head injury. And every year we admit about 200,000 people to hospital because of a head injury. And of those, about one-fifth will uh, have features suggesting a skull fracture or have evidence of uh, brain damage. So as if it's a very common presentation and, and can be quite a challenging presentation to, to sort of sort out in the acute setting, can't it? It can be, yeah. It's, um, it's one of those um, um, scenarios where we as the senior team have many discussions with lots of the, um, lots of the trainees um, junior trainees, the foundation doctors in particular, and there seems to be this um, um, uh, a fear almost around head injuries and a fear of what discharging them. And there's certain explicit things in the histories that that we're looking for, mm-hmm. certain red flags that are in the history that are um, are taken straight from the um, from the nice guidelines. Okay. Um, they're quite comprehensive. Um, and a lot of our clinical practice is bringing those guidelines into um, into practice. Mm. I suppose another thing that sort of complicates the issue is it, it can be all age groups as well. So it can be the 18-year-old the student who may have had one too many drinks and has fallen over and hit their head, all the way to an elderly patient from a nursing home who may have a background of dementia anyway, which changes things as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the guidelines are there to guide you, um, and you've got to be sensible in mm. applying those guidelines <coughs> But yes, yeah, certainly extremes of ages um, are um, uh, certainly anomalies to the to the general rule, um, where your clinical practice needs to um, um, reflect them. Okay, so we'll get onto the guidelines in a little bit. Um, I think first of all, so just imagine you're you're on the shop floor, you're the consultant in charge in ED, uh, and uh, one of your F1s has gone off to see a patient who's been booked in as head injury. And that's all the information that, that's available at the time. Um, what key questions do you want your F1 to have asked in their clerking before they come and see you for advice? Okay, so when they're taking the history, I mean, it's the, the fundamentals of uh, history taking that we'd expect them to, to be able to present. So um, they'd, they'd need to take a, a history of the actual cause of the fall, the, 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 the um, reasons why the, pa- why the patients had a fall um, and had a subsequent head injury. And then there's actually exploring the, um, the features of the head injury, any loss of consciousness, has it been a sustained period of loss of consciousness, was there, um, how long was it before they regained consciousness, um, was there, um, any, is there any amnesia, is there retrograde amnesia, has there been any vomiting, um, has there been any seizure type activity as a result of the, of the fall. Um, um, any, any, any periods of vomiting, um, and um, those are the those are the those are the things that we're looking for. If it's a straightforward fall um, and there's minimal head injury, there's not been any of those red flag symptoms. The patient's doing absolutely fine. Um, then 
we want to see if we can get that patient looked after at home and see if we can get that patient patient home. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the important things. I mean, the real, the, the real ultimate aim of getting the answers to those questions is, do we need to perform any further imaging? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's what we're looking at, and that's that's essentially what what the discussion is 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 about. Mm. Um, and um, the answering those answers to those questions will influence the decision mm. about whether to image and when not to image. Because there's um, there's ethical considerations there with regard to proper use of resources, plus also a radiation risk. So patients sometimes always want the scan. So we're talking about CT heads here, really. But we can't CT head everybody, can we? And certainly there are risks attached to a CT head. Yeah, of course. Um, now, because we can do, it, or we've got further access, well, we've got, we've got greater access to imaging modality, so CT scans are now 24-7, available 24-7. Um, and okay, if we're talking examples, you, you know, you have a one-year-old who's had a fall, who's had... 20 episodes of vomiting since the bang to the head but in between he's absolutely fine mm. he's running around he's playing and he's absolutely terrified of you and as soon as you come anywhere near them they burst into tears mm. but they've got a big bump on their head and they're still vomiting mm. do you then risk that child having a CT scan when you know for it he's not going to lie still with a CT scanner mm. do you then complicate the situation by saying you're going to give him a general anaesthetic because that's sure the only way that he's going to lie still for mm. a CT scan and of course that's no because he's, he's doing well so that child can be observed so there are little tweaks to it whereas the el- there's the elderly confused uh, patient who's got severe cognitive impairment from a nursing home who's got mm. a bang to the head has had a fall um, and um, again he's not going to lie still in the CT scanner do you then risk putting mm. that patient um, um, at further pharmacological mm. harm by giving them a a, um, a sedative. Yeah. And the answer is no. You know, you, you've got to kind of you've got to tweak your practice accordingly. So yes, there is that risk of mm-hmm. um, um, the additional risk yeah. that you put the be that you place the patients under mm. um, <coughs> by wanting to do a CT scan. Mm. And so you've got to always have a, a plan B of how you're going to uh, look after that group of patients with a head injury. Mm. So I suppose you. So you want to establish the mechanism of injury because I suppose you don't want to miss have they collapsed because they had an MI and that's why they've hit their head. So I suppose you want to hear how did you feel before you fell? Do you remember falling? What did you hit your head on and all those sorts of things? Um, and there's also a good idea of getting a, a baseline of how they are normally because we do see a lot of patients who have a bit of dementia anyway and might be GCS14 normally. So I suppose the collateral history there is very important as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just one part of the history of the presented complaint that you're talking about. The presented mm-hmm. complaint is that they've had a fall and a head injury and you're exploring around. So it's kind of going back to the basic medical school examination. So once you've done the history taking and the head injury, then you've got to do the past medical history, the drug history. A lot of the patients are on polypharmacy. They're on lots of drugs. And the hypertension may well have been over-treated. Mm-hmm. And they we have as medics put them at additional risk of having mm. a fall so doing the drug history social history what sort of support they've got at home is all part of a, a, of a, a basic good history that we'd expect from um, foundation doctors mm. um, and in fact all career grade doctors um, mm. to be able to to answer those those questions because you, you, you know you're advocating for that patient mm. for whatever investigation that they need so you really should know about your patient mm. So I suppose this is the point where, you know, 
is there any family with the patient if they can't give a good history themselves? Uh, if they're not present, you need to make a very good effort to speak either you know on the phone or trying to contact yeah, um, um, a relative or the carer through the care home or something because they don't always come in with somebody. So yeah. you need to show and document that you've made a good effort. Yeah, either you know getting in contact with the nursing home, getting some collateral history from next of kin, family members, um, paramedics, EMAS attendance form. Um, are, are all are all ways of you building um, a profile as to why that patient has attended the emergency department. Mm. And I suppose also got to make sure that it's not the only injury. So a head oh, injury yeah, exactly. can be very dramatic and very obvious. Fractured yeah, hips, not so. Yeah, it's the second injury, and it's you know it's don't get you know don't don't get fucked bogged down on the on the head when they've got a heart rate of 180 and they're in fast air or they've got atrial flutter or they might have a rip roaring sepsis mm. um, or as he correctly said you know they might have a NOF they might have a vertebral um, yeah. fracture so yeah you've got to make sure you you do a full primary and secondary of the of the patient which forms again part mm. of your basic examination okay um, so I suppose we'll go through the nice guidelines in a little bit now so I suppose all the the features we're worried about like you said so you're worried about is there an intracranial injury um, signs of raised intracranial pressure, I suppose, as a result of a subdural hematoma or, or, yeah. or um, a, a, you know, a traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. So um, we have the guidelines here in front of us. So um, for those of you listening, um, these are NICE guidelines uh, CG176 that can easily be found on the NICE uh, website. And uh, we'll put um, a link to this on the, the Twitter and Facebook pages as well to help you find it. Uh, and these are very, very useful, I find, in when we're discussing with radiology to whether or not to scan a, a patient's um, head or not following an injury. So we'll, we'll go through it now, um, if that's okay. Um, so the first step is about whether we get that immediate CT head, so i.e. within an hour of them, them coming in. And so this, this first step here is, is about the GCS, isn't it, Asif? Yeah, so the, it depends on... It depends on Departments that you work in, so you'd be working. You, you know, the emergency departments that you that work in are essentially two types. You've got a university emergency university hospital emergency department, then you have an emergency department in district generals. Mm -hmm. And the standard operating procedures for each department will vary from place to place, and not every single emergency department will have immediate access to CT. They may have a standard operating procedure where patients come in and they are observed for a short period of time mm. under whichever specialty has the agreement. So it may be under the emergency department, it might be under the orthopaedic team, it might be under the general surgeons, or you may work in a university hospital emergency department where actually CT scans are, are available quite readily and you'd get a CT scan and the decision to admit or discharge would be based on the CT scan. Sure thing. So you've got to you've got to put this into again. Yes, nice guidelines are there as a as a standard across the country guidelines, and different centres have adopted or adapted it to their own departmental mm. uh, local standard operating procedure. Sure but essentially, it is a case of when to scan, and as you rightly said, it's getting a CT scan within one hour, or which of those patients can wait and have a CT scan mm. later. Um, but um, um, in, a, in, a, in, in short, the, the GCS does form a, a part of the immediate CT scans. Mm. So for adults who've sustained a head injury, the ones that you would want to perform a, <coughs> a CT scan on will be those with a GCS of less than 13 on initial assessment in the um, emergency department. 
um, or those who have a GCS of less than 15 two hours post um, head injury or post assessment in the um, in the emergency department. These are the these are the high risk groups, mm-hmm. and essentially what what the guidelines are doing is it's risk um, it's risk assessing for you. Mm-hmm. That is the fundamental role of or role your role as an emergency department practitioner is to um, is to risk assess. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so certainly GCS would be first one of the first things that I as a senior would be wanting to, to know mm-hmm. from you, um, mm-hmm. and that forms part of the um, um, your assessment, your examination, mm-hmm. and knowing the components of your. Mm. Glasgow Coma School, so knowing the motor components, knowing your verbal component, knowing your eye component, because mm. that in itself can provide a lot of vital information to the specialty on the other side of things. Mm. So if you've got a patient who's got a fluctuating GCS or got an altered GCS mm. um, and does have an abnormality on the CT scan, well, the neurosurgeons will want to know mm. what the breakdown of that GCS is. You can't say 13, well, they want to know where they lose it. Mm. So, patient losing a score. Uh, on the motor side of uh, the Glasgow Coma School will actually be more at more risk of severe brain injury if rather than losing the two on the on the eyes. Mm. So you've got to know your, you've got to know the components, um, and again, that's in every basic emergency medicine, neurosurgical, neurology textbook. Mm. Absolutely, and also I suppose that never <coughs> assume that that GCS is due to alcohol or, or, drugs. Some, or yeah. drugs, age, something else. And, you That's know. a classical trait. If you look back at all the anecdotal cases where there's been serious head injuries that have been, that have been missed, what your initial assessment of somebody with a severe head injury, mm. how you can potentially improve someone's quality of life or mm. actually by missing things, simple mm. things, cutting corners, you mm. could quite cause quite mm. serious harm. The temptation to, oh, we'll let this patient who's, I think, is drunk sober up for a bit, for a few hours, you're actually potentially causing damage in that time if there is a, an intracranial injury that you're missing. Yeah, there's a classical, classical mistake. Alcohol, drugs, plus head injury mm. should always equal, let's get, some, let's get some imaging, or this patient needs to have a few more things done before we even think mm. contemplate discharging or putting somewhere. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and so, um, moving on, we suppose um, it mentions now talking about um, suspected um, open depressed skull fracture or any sign of a basal skull fracture. So, as, as a senior clinician, what are you looking for there, Asif? So, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, the, the, again, these are criteria that we're using for... Mm. Um, um, for doing a CT scan within an mm. hour, so mm. suspected open or depressed skull fracture. Um, again, we are. It, that is one of the um, um, criteria for uh, immediate CT scanning, and what mm. we're looking for is, is essentially is that depressed skull fracture, the depressed bone itself. Mm. We're not doing the CT scan because we want to identify that there's a skull fracture there. Mm. What we want to know is what is the affect of that skull Absolutely. fracture. Absolutely, in a closed box. In a closed the skull. box. Yeah. Is, there, is there bleeding underneath? Is that depression causing pressure on the brain that's going to cause some further, um, further, further serious harm to the to the patient? Um, so, um, so uh, yeah. So we we really want to see what the affect of of, of that uh, that injury is. Mm. 
And what are the signs of a um, basal skull fracture? So, so signs of a, so firstly a suspected depressed skull fracture, it, it, you're going to feel more of a boggy soft swelling rather than a firm hard swelling. If you're feeling a firm hard swelling then that's probably um, not, a, um, a, not, not a skull fracture, that's probably more a soft tissue contusion on top, yeah. of, a, on top of, a, um, uh, of hard bone. It's usually that there's a lot, a lot more bleeding, and it comes. It, it feels soft. Okay. Um, yeah. Signs of a basal skull fracture. You've got. Um, you, you may have um, uh, bleeding from the ears. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you may have bloody otorrhea. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or, or or you may have CSF mucus rhinorrhea. Mm. Um, discharge from from the nose, and that looks like a very clear it's sort of clear fluid, liquid, doesn't it? Yeah, it might be slightly blood stained. You may you may not get any discharge from the ears, but definitely an otoscope examination of the ears and looking for blood behind the mm. tympanic membrane, so looking for a hemotympanum, um, or looking for what we call panda eyes or battle eyes, where there's periorbital bruising um, mm. around both eyes. Um, again, well, panda eyes over here, raccoon eyes over in America. Yeah, so, so they're, they're the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. The, where your book was written and yeah, which exactly. market it's aimed at, but and, they're um, the same thing. And, and, and battle sign where you've got bruising over the, the over the mastoid process, mm. so mm. just behind your ear. Um, again, those are quite um, quite telltale signs for a a, um, a basic skull fracture, mm. and certainly something that you should. Um, Examined for in a, in a head injury, and those that's just signs of blood sort of that might be leaking out and pooling, isn't it? Yeah, the, the battle sign yeah, and then the, the, the panda eyes. Um, I actually have a birthmark behind one of my ears, which I, I think a number of consultants have pointed and stared at because it, it does apparently look just like battle signs. So, all right, okay. So, how um, many CT scans have you had? <laughs> none yet, but if I'm ever found unconscious, I know I'm certainly <laughs> going to get a CT head because of that. Um, okay, so. Um, that's looking really at the, the, the skull, so you want a full look around the, the head basically, a full 360 to, to check and have a good feel and have a look and like you said, uh, an otoscope as well. Um, mm. So then it, it's on to a few other things post-event, so um, mentions a, a post-traumatic seizure which I think you, you've already sort of alluded to. Yeah. Um, should we discuss, so any sort of seizure activity well, following the... Any any head, it's, it's, usually, so it's usually a case of you have seen the patient secondhand, so it's probably a chicken and egg story. What mm. came first? Did the fall come first, and mm. then the bang that's caused the 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 seizure activity, or did the patient have a seizure activity, then fall, bang the head, and then continue seizing? Mm. Um, and th that is sometimes a, a mistake. That well, it's not really a mistake. It's a a, um, a dilemma that you're that you often met with. Mm. Um, what came first? And I think in that case, I think you've got to kind of put safety first and go with your gut instinct and say, well, actually, there's been seizure activity. If the patient comes in and is on epilim, is on phenytoin, carbamazepine, on Keppra, and lots mm. of anti-epileptics, uh, but is now GCS15 but has sustained a head injury, then you're probably safe to say, well, we can observe that patient. And mm. that is, a, again, it's a I was going to ask, judgment. what would you do in a patient who's known to have epilepsy? So, has yeah, a, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, that, so that, again, that is a, a clinical judgment. Again, that's where you kind of look back at the, uh, the original mm. things that we talked about, about Glasgow Coma Scale. So if a patient who's got epilepsy, who's got a head injury, who's got a GCS of less than... 13 or 15 mm. from in the first few hours after the head injury, then yeah, absolutely, you'd be thinking about doing a CT scan. But if a patient is non-epileptic, has had a seizure, has had a head injury, is now back to GCS 15, is not post-ictal, he's talking and his family is saying he's now back to normal, well, those patients, you could 
you could quite easily observe. Mm. Um, but the other group, you'd be thinking about doing doing some imaging for as per the as per the guidelines. I suppose, also, like you said, also think about the chicken and the egg situation. So you know, not to think, not to forget other things. So you know, is this a patient with alcohol excess who might be having withdrawal seizures? Yeah. Uh, and if you focus on the head injury and neglect to give any uh, benzodiazepine to contract that, you you're causing more problems as well. Yeah. So it's important yeah. not to forget that as well. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, next step um, talks about a focal neurological deficit. So I suppose here is your your full peripheral neuro exam, isn't it? This yeah. Is so it's, it's it's very important to do a neurological examination. Minor head injuries, patients who've Glasgow coma scores of fourteen, fifteen can actually have cranial nerve mm. abnormalities that can affect the olfactory nerve, the optic nerve, facial nerve. So these are all things that would form part of your basic neurological assessment of it's mm. not just looking at the exterior and saying right oh there's a bump to the head right this mm. patient needs a CT scan you also with, like any other um, patient you do a neurological examination and identify is there a neurological abnormality because mm. patients with minor head injuries do have cranial nerve mm. abnormalities mm. and can be very subtle ones as well can be very subtle. so you so you're doing a full peripheral neuro, you're doing a cranial nerve exam as well. So you're looking for a focal neurological deficit as you're going along. And I suppose also, again, important to think about, you know, chicken and egg, has the patient had a stroke that's caused a fall, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you, I, I, can th I can think of cases where patients have had, um, had a fall and a, and a head injury and everybody's focused on the head injury and forgotten the fact that they've got a heart rate of 180 and they've also got a fracture neck of femur. Mm. I mean, this patient is very, very sick, but mm. the referral hasn't reflected that. Mm. So the speciality of the referral has reflected a head injury. Mm. And it, it can get quite embarrassing because you're advocate, you, you are advocating for your speciality in emergency medicine and also you've got to take pride in the patients that you see mm. and deal with. What you don't want to be doing is making mm. incorrect referrals or doing the wrong thing for your patient because no mm. one's going to thank you for it at the end of the day. No, absolutely um, not. And... Um, so you've got to be extremely weary of that as well. So yeah, not uh, not focusing on one, remembering your A to E at all times. Yes. Yeah. Remembering that E can also stand for everything else. Thinking, looking at the whole picture of the patient, and sure, absolutely. Okay, and um, then the final step of of, of the um, CTE head uh, within one hour criteria states more than one episode of vomiting. Again, very difficult if your patient may also have taken other substances. Um, Quite common as well. I think. I think a lot of patients have at least vomited at least once by the time I've seen them after their head injury. Um, this ep this idea of one episode I find a bit challenging. Does that mean you've had you know because when you vomit you might vomit three times in one and then that's an episode or but then the patient might tell you well I vomited three times. It's a bit difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think again you've got to take it on. I think you've got to take it on merit and your clinical um, suspicion. So you, you you're right. If people will confuse three episodes of vomiting or three vomiting three times as three separate episodes but they may be kind of within a short period of time mm. um, so I think it's um, again there's um, you you've got a you've got a fact factor that part of your assessment like I said it's, it's an overall assessment and this is one component where you're asking lots of different questions um, I mean if the patient's had only one episode of vomiting and no episodes of vomiting and has had a Glasgow coma score of 13 since the since the actual the incident, then you're not 
you're not not going to do a CT scan, you're still going to perform a CT scan. So I think that is kind of mm. um, a question that, again, can cause some confusion, but I think, you've, again, as a practitioner, you've got to be um, um, quite a fox about when you're going to uh, utilise that, that bit mm. of the information. But certainly something that I, as a senior consultant, would um, be asking, has there been episodes of vomiting mm. in, as part of my red flag assessment? Mm. And I suppose, yeah, so, I mean, these are all sort of things about looking, you know, any signs of raised intracranial pressure, any signs of a fracture which may cause further problems as well that are going on as well. Um, there's also, I think, the elements to think about about maybe um, an extradural hemorrhage where there may be a period of lucidity following the initial accident, isn't there, as well? Yeah, those are the ones that make the headlines. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the ones where they've, you know, they've had a head injury, loss of consciousness. You know, there's been few that have, there was one of the, um, um, I forget the name of the actress, Liam Neeson's. Liam wife. Neeson's wife very tragically died a few she years back. Exactly yeah. the same way. Um, Schumacher, mm. um, um, exactly the same. Um, and um, yeah, there's a few more um, cases that um, uh, you know, certainly not famous people, but. Mm patients who come to the department who've had mm. very similar sorts of mm. um, um, tragic um, histories of mm. head injury, lucidity, and they come uh, and then um, um, regaining consciousness and saying that everything's absolutely fine, going away and then slumping away in a corner. That's those anecdotal cases, unfortunately, has what's led to these, these guidelines. Mm. So that the, the standard of care provided to all patients with head injury is is is, is the same standard. Mm. I think that's that's quite an. Um, I think it might have even been in my finals exam, or at least in a mock finals exam. The um, you see a patient who was hit the side of their head uh, after falling off a horse. Initial loss of consciousness. Patient is now completely fine and wants to go home. What is your initial concern? And extradural was the was the point. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's important to think about that as well. Okay, so um, those are the um, initial parts of the um, CT head scan uh, guidelines, and, and, but then there are some other things as well that we need to talk about as well, um, which guides within eight hours. I appreciate other places, of, of course, may be different as well. This is what the NICE guidelines states. Um, and it, it mentions um, a specific age group, so the elderly, over 65 um, years old, so we, we still class elderly as. Um, and um, also any history of, of bleeding or clotting disorders? Yeah, so th- these are kind of... Um, the elderly group over the age of 65 who tend to fall um, as a result of various factors, cognitive impairment, poor mobility because of other underlying diseases, illnesses, as a result of taking too many medications. Mm. Um, and there's lots of other things that you've got to factor in. So doing a head CT scan for these patients may not be the only thing that you need to consider. Mm. Um, it, they may have neck injuries concurrent with it, so you maybe need to think about doing a head and a C-spine um, CT at the same time. Mm. Um, What's more interesting with the this this elderly age group is that they may be taking anticoagulant medications. Mm. So they may be on warfarin. They may be on um, uh, rivaroxaban. So the novel, new age, yeah. so the novel um, new anticoagulant medications. 
um, um, or Compared the Compared Clopidogrel as well. Clopidogrel. So these patients taking these medications um, for um, all these new age anticoagulants are, are, are the ones that are potentially at risk mm. of um, having subtle bleeds or injuries that can um, bleed over a short period of time. Um, and then they lead to your subdurals that upon discharge come back. So these are patients that you've really got to think about. So they may not need an immediate CT scan, mm. um, but may need a period of observation. Where mm. that period of observation is, is that's where you've got to gatekeep and you've got a safety net. So mm. they may be in a nursing home where they've mm. got nursing care, where they may be able yeah. to provide head injury observations. And um, those are um, um, uh, places of safety where you can be assured that the patient will be looked after. If that isn't possible, or the patient lives in their own home and has carers come twice a day or three times a day, mm. then that is a group that you would need to keep and admit mm. and so that you are looking after them. Mm. Um, others, you may be able to negotiate with family, mm. who's going to stay with, or is, it rather, is the patient going to go and stay with family? Mm. Um, and um, With the advice, the things that we've already talked about, so any confusion, vomiting, seizure, yeah, come so if they develop get call 999. Yeah. Absolutely, if they develop any of those red flags there as to when to come back to the emergency departments. Mm. Um, but again, those will not need an immediate mm. CT scan mm. because they've got none of the original elements in there. Sure thing. Okay. Um, I suppose it's... Another thing I, I find difficult as a, as a junior sometimes is the patients who may be on, say, they're on warfarin, we've scanned their head, their head is fine, uh, but CT heads can miss subtle bleeds or bleeds can occur later on. So it is that question of judging then where does that patient uh, go? Where yeah. does that patient go? Do they still need to stay in for observation from our point of view or well, elsewhere? Well, exactly. I think that's, that, that is a, that is a, uh, it's a good question. And again, I think um, how you would... Um, translate that into reality is again I think um, uh, it, it again de depends on how how you would restratify that patient and mm. what the risk is and if you are um, if you are convinced and the nursing staff is happy that the level of care provided to them or, or level it's not really a level of care the level of observation mm. is um, satisfactory then there's no reason why those patients can't go home with a view to returning mm. to the emergency department um, but certainly I would say that I would have a very low threshold for admitting these patients mm. um, elderly patients on warfarin who've got mm. no sign of head injury or serious head injury on the initial CT scan um, internal uh, head injury, so they've got an external head injury, but nothing. So yeah. an internal, a, external head injury, but don't actually have mm. a um, um, anyone to look after. Then, then mm. I certainly would have a low threshold of mm. keeping them in hospital. Absolutely, and um, yeah, because neuro observations are a very precise thing. Very have to be. We'll talk about that in a bit, but a very frequent thing. Initially, it can be hourly, aren't they? So you have to be satisfied that that's going to yeah. take place. Okay, um, the next step is something that um, when I first started in A&E as, as an F2 was, was something I, I found my head um, sometimes difficult to get my head around as, as what qualifies as, so it talks about a, a dangerous mechanism of injury and I suppose there's kind of an inexact science to that sometimes so in the guidelines it mentions uh, if you're struck by a motor vehicle, if you've been ejected by a motor vehicle or a fall from a height of greater than one metre or five stairs um, but even within that, there's a bit of wiggle room and clinical suspicion, yeah. isn't there? There isn't. There's no hard and fast rules. Dangerous mechanism. Again, it's how the patient has 
um, how, it's pre how, the pre how they're presented to you, how that mechanism fits in with the rest of the profile that the patient has in front of you mm. is what you have to um, mm. um, um, what do you have to put it in? You just got to weigh it in as an equation, don't you? So absolutely, absolutely. Um, and um, I suppose it's then it's, it's you know elements. Um, if you know if they're a cyclist or they've fallen off, you know were they wearing a helmet? The protective gear involved. Yeah. Having a look at that protective gear so having a look at their helmet you know if it's completely smashed you know are there signs that there was an impact onto the head so that might make you worried again that there may be no external head injury but there may be an internal one because yeah, that transmission absolutely. of force yeah okay absolutely um and then um, it mentions more than 30 minutes retrograde amnesia of events immediately before the head injury so um two types of amnesia aren't there's the anterior grade where you're not forming new memories or there's a the retrograde where you can't remember what's happened before uh, so this is talking about you've you've lost the 30 minutes before that head injury and again I suppose there's some clinical suspicion within that as well you know yeah again if you've got 29 minutes you, you're still going to be yeah, yeah. absolutely I think it, I think the importance of the retrograde amnesia is it essentially translates to the force that's been mm. um, applied to the head which has caused um, that period of amnesia reflecting potentially underlying damage um, and that in itself would be um, would be a worrying sign mm. um, along with the with, with the other with the other factors I think that on its own um, patients who've got more than 30 minutes of retrograde amnesia would be something that um, again depending on which center you're in you may be able to get an immediate CT scan mm. or you may think well that or you may be in a place where you need to observe that patient for a period of time until actually they're not going to be discharged yeah um, and um, and be admitted mm. um, I think you'd, you'd you'd probably be extremely brave considering discharge of somebody who's come in with 30 minutes of retrograde amnesia without mm. um, any of the other red flag signs mm -hmm. and then sending them home to be observed whilst they're still exhibiting signs of that amnesia. So you'd want to see some, some recovery. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so that's, so you know, the, the guidelines are there for, for people to listening to have a, to have a good read through and I think they've been very helpful and, and I suppose that the longer I've done emergency medicine, almost my threshold has actually lowered, if anything, for, for scanning. And I think I've got you know anecdotal cases as well, and, and I think we all we all have those sort of patients. And I think to think about the other things as well, um, you know, and um, not to forget uh, other things such you know thrombopenia if there's a low uh, platelet count, haemophilia, anything like that. You know, yeah. Not forgetting those sorts of things. Um, and then also thinking, um, I think, you know, as a, as a junior doctor, you can be incredibly helpful in, for your patient and for your seniors to then think about the next step. So if your patient is on warfarin or has um, some other bleeding condition to speak to, for example, haematology to get some advice about correcting any anticoagulation that, that may be present if a significant head injury is found. Yes, yeah. I mean, but that, again, that goes, kind of goes to your making sure that yes you've identified the head injury but don't get kind of so gung ho on on, on on that and take a stand back so you're not missing the bigger picture and you're not missing any other thing concurrent things that need immediate attention as well mm -hmm. and um so I suppose i mean we, we very we focus very much on the emergency department um in this conversation um but things just just uh, as we're coming to wrap up um 
sadly falls on hospital wards do happen. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. These, are, these are guidelines and, for um, some people. These are these are very yeah. these. The, even though it says emergency departments, they are for everybody. And if you are the F1 on call overnight and you are reviewing a patient who has sadly fallen in the hospital and has some sort of head injury, these are still Same applicable, apply. Still, apply, uh, still apply. And if you are satisfied, that's the point to go with a very clear safety netting for the nursing staff with regular neuro observations. If this happens, call me back and to get that that CT head in place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, what, you've got to, what you've got to remember is that um, this is a, a standard of practice, not just for emergency departments. This is, as you rightly said, falls can happen anywhere. Hospital wards is a common place where patients fall, and exactly the same rules apply. Mm. Um, and um, um, and if if ever you have any uh, any concerns, any doubts, there's always a senior. Absolutely. So always, you know, as mm. as foundation doctors, I would certainly be expecting you to bounce that off your of your of your junior middle grades, senior middle grades, mm. and consultants if mm. they're if they're around. And um, I suppose the next step is, you know, if something is found, um, and you discuss with uh, your neurosurgical uh, colleague, um, and they may say at that point, nothing for us to do. So there is no surgical intervention needed. You need very clear guidelines from them is safety netting so what do we now need to look for so you know an elderly patient falls has a bit of a bleed on the head they're coming in under the medical team anyway not for surgery now but what do we need to look out for so I can tell my medical colleagues that if this happens look out for that yeah so I mean it's your basic neural observations and in, with any hip or head injury patient you're looking at doing hourly neural mm. observations in the first few hours as per the guidelines and then after that point you then you you increase the time between you can do two hourly observations mm-hmm. um, to then doing them as per your mm. your routine trust based guidelines whatever they say about doing the, your, your, the, um, the observations for the patients and some of them may be four hourly some of them may be six hourly depending on depending on where you work but certainly following a head injury uh, your advice to the nursing staff followed by uh, by your discussion with neurosurgeons where there is no neurosurgical input required mm. would be to do hourly neuro observations but I think the most important thing I must stress is that you you, you know the components of your, of your Glasgow coma scale yeah um, and you need to be able to apply it because it depends it, it, it is you have that interpersonal variability mm. you may have a nurse who's very um, who's not as robust as yourself in depl- applying a painful stimuli to what mm. the patient can localize to mm. and that goes from a potential five or six to a potential three or four yeah and that amounts to a drop in the GCS and you can often you know within leaving that patient within half an hour you have to return because the the nurses have reported a a drop Mm. in the GCS and you it's kind of going back and it's it's probably better if the same person does the the assessment Mm. uh, but that's not always possible Mm. but I think that's certainly a, a factor that you've got to keep in the back of your mind as well absolutely and um I suppose uh, just thinking about from a discharge point of view, so if, if you're satisfied for the emergency department, just to once more just re-emphasise that safety netting, what is the social circumstances? Um, if the patient lives alone, it's two o'clock in the morning, there is nobody at home, nobody's going to see them for another 12 hours, nobody's going to shout at you for keeping that patient in, are they? No, absolutely. I think that, again, you, 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 you're putting patient safety at... Um um, paramount here 
aren't you? And that's that's the that's the most important thing. And even those patients who are discharged, they'll often ask for you know, well, what do I need to do mm. to come back to? And often get asked this question, particularly in children, mm. um, what do we need to come back for? Yeah. Um, and rather than listing a whole load of symptoms if they start vomiting or if they start fitting or if you've got any concerns or if they've gone off to sleep they might have missed the boat at that point mm. and what I tell them is that as soon as they start questioning is this related to the head injury I think that that is the point that they need sure. to come back to the hospital so I'd give them generic advice and they often go back home mm. with a head injury leaflet mm. anyway yeah I was going to say most departments will have a, or if not NHS the websites so I, have, have good, head they've, they've got all that information there for yeah. the families to go to go home with but uh, in, invariably what I tell the patients is um, when they ask me that question is that if you have any concerns you must come back to the emergency department mm. um, even if we do look at everything again reassure you and discharge you but the most important thing is that we do have a look at you again and don't rely on mm. that everything will be fine I think once mm. you start doing that that is you really are yeah. leaving yourself open to making some quite nasty mistakes yeah and I suppose just just finally I mean um, something of uh, that I always mention to my students as well with with these uh, patients presenting like this to um, make sure that the history matches what you're seeing so a patient who tells you that they remember falling uh, and yet has no injuries on their palms and has a load of facial injuries would indicate that they've potentially blacked out they've not tried to save themselves and they face planted the floor yes to have that in your mind and go actually this it doesn't is. add up. Yeah, absolutely. Point, because point, patients point, will say, yeah. well, I want to go home. I remember it was fine. It was just a simple trip. Very often maybe with their relatives present and you've got to be, actually, this doesn't make just sense. Doesn't add up. Yeah, again, it goes down to your risk assessment and checking that they're, um, um, the, the mechanism mm. uh, of injury is consistent with, with the injury pattern that they have. So, um, yeah, just mm. goes back to your basic history and examination. That was the Take Orally Head Injury Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.